0: Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head, what do I really need? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head, I'm Michael Barts. My guest today is Dr. Katherine Harrison. Dr. Harrison is a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia. Her areas of expertise include environmental, climate, and energy policy, federalism, and comparative public policy. She's advised local, provincial, and national governments, and is the author of Passing the Buck, Federalism, and Canadian Environmental Policy, and co-author of Risk Science and Politics. Catherine is a regular commentator in print and broadcast media, and has written numerous op-eds published in the Vancouver Sun, Globe and Mail, and Maclean's. Welcome to In Over My Head, Professor Harrison. Thank you. So in in talking about the decarbonization of the electricity grid, one factor worth discussing is the relations between federal and provincial governments and how that affects policy and regulation implementation. I, I suspect a completely united Canada could tackle all aspects of climate change more effectively, but it seems as though we're far from united. So to begin with, I think we should start with the big picture. Within the Canadian Federation, there's the national government and the various provincial governments. How effective is our current system at implementing climate change policy and regulation? That's a
1: big question. Um, It's one I've certainly worked on for a long time. But before I answer it, one thing I would say is there is a temptation to attribute all of the success or all of the failure to the thing we're talking about. And an important factor that is in the background uh, that makes everything difficult is that Canada has an extremely carbon intensive economy we have among the highest per capita greenhouse gas emissions in the world. And that has two parts to it. The first is that we have carbon intensive industries, oil and gas, but also you know carbon intensive manufacturing sectors, and they resist change. But we've also Canadians, households, Canadian individuals tend to have very fossil fuel intensive lifestyles. We drive the least fuel efficient vehicles in the world. We live in very large homes in global terms that are typically heated by fossil fuels. So there are political challenges independent of Canadian federalism, but the federal system is layered on top of that. And I mean, the way I think about political institutions is they're like the rules of the game. And, you know, hockey fans all know that uh, the rules of the game, depending how they're enforced, can favor some interests, dampen others. And I think The quite decentralized federation Canada has, has posed a real challenge for the transition to a low-carbon economy in a few ways. Um, One of them is that provincial governments own the fossil fuels. So provincial governments control natural resources, and although I would note in many cases ownership is contested by First Nations who who never signed treaties, certainly in British Columbia, but generally the provincial governments control the fossil fuels. They rely on them for royalties. They rely on them for economic development to create jobs and build political support. And what results from that is very big differences in the climate ambitions of different provinces. A province like Quebec, with abundant hydroelectricity has stronger support for actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions than provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan, which have very high per capita emissions. And so when we look at policies that are made at the provincial level, there's big differences, but also when we look to Canada-wide policies adopted by the federal government, there has been a tradition of provincial premiers and the prime minister or provincial environment ministers and the federal environment minister sitting around a table and talking through things and trying to achieve consensus. And I think that informal goal of consensus has really held us back in moving forward on climate policy for a very long time because essentially the carbon intensive provinces had a veto for 25 years.
0: Um, So you talked about consensus as far as the provincial and federal government. Does there need to be a consensus for us to make progress when it comes to the climate crisis?
1: I think Canadians love the idea of our politicians getting along. And, you know, all else being equal, that's a good thing. But I think there are trade-offs between progress in decarbonizing our economy and federal provincial harmony. And I think we have to decide what's more important to us, everyone getting along or transitioning our economy. And historically, um, throughout the 1990s, different provinces, and really till 2015, different provinces blocked different initiatives. So there was a big federal-provincial effort to try to come up with a joint plan to implement Canada's Kyoto Protocol target. The provinces withdrew and all objected to the unilateral federal plan. The federal government never implemented that plan. Alberta and Saskatchewan objected to the idea of a national cap and trade program. Ontario objected to regulation of motor vehicle emissions because auto manufacturing is still very important for Ontario but used to be even more important. So, on different issues different provinces have blocked national progress and I think a lot changed in 2015, 2016 in very positive ways when climate action became the goal with intergovernmental harmony, a secondary goal, rather than getting
0: along being the goal in and of itself. And that was the uh, the Pan-Canada Climate Plan that you're referring to? Yeah, the Pan-Canadian Climate Framework. Okay.
1: The conditions for that were laid by two elections in 2015, election of an NDP government in Alberta. First change in government in many, many decades in that province. And Alberta was keen to get out ahead of the federal government and establish its own climate plan, including its own carbon pricing plan, before um, the federal government did. And they did uh, establish a uh, carbon tax phase out of coal-fired electricity, um, not with a level of ambition consistent with Canada's Paris Agreement target, but really important step. Then we had a change in government at the federal level. At the end of 2015, before heading off to Paris for the international negotiations, there was this moment of harmony where the first ministers of the provinces and the federal government were all sort of game to work together. A year later, they had negotiated the Pan-Canadian Framework. And eventually all provinces and territories except Saskatchewan signed on to that. So that was this moment of almost consensus. But by 2018, that all blew apart. And provinces were withdrawing from their commitments under the Pan-Canadian Framework. There were changes in government, the Ford government, withdrew Ontario from emissions trading with California and Quebec. And that was a critical moment in the fall of 2018, where the federal government had said, if the provinces don't do it, we will. That sort of threat of unilateralism was critical to getting agreement in 2018. And following through on that in 2018, 2019 was A really pivotal moment, I think, in Canadian climate policy because there was an election coming up. They were imposing a carbon tax in four, soon to be five provinces over the objection of provincial governments. And in a large fraction of cases, the citizens in living in those provinces, and they did it anyway. And that was really the moment where the federal government jettisoned the really the tyranny of federal provincial consensus.
0: Okay. And and it's 2022 now. Where are things at in that regard? Well, it it
1: didn't go over well in 2019. And um, the provinces that had a federal carbon tax imposed, with the exception of Manitoba, challenged that in court. Uh, They challenged the constitutionality of the federal government's authority to establish carbon pricing in provinces. That went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the federal government won. The federal government won on the grounds that no province can solve this on their own. And if you have one province that is acting, one or a few provinces, that are acting to reduce their own emissions, the gains, the hard-won gains in those provinces can be undone by emissions increases in other provinces. And that's, in fact, what had happened for a long period of time in the Canadian federation so they upheld the idea of a federal backstop which wasn't you know a, a blank check for the federal government to do whatever they want but i think the combination of the federal government's willingness to act unilaterally which is something we hadn't seen before and them being authorized to continue doing that within you know bound reasonable bounds by the supreme court has really led to a whole series of subsequent steps. The federal government subsequently announced that the carbon price would continue to be increased from 2020, where it'll be like $50 per ton to $170 per ton in 2030. In the um, 2021 federal election, the Liberals proposed a whole series of federal regulations, a cap on oil and gas emissions, a clean electricity standard, a regulation that would require gradual transition to 100% sale of zero emission vehicles by 2035. So a whole series of federal, Canada-wide policies. There will be consultations, but the assumption is the federal government is going to adopt these regulations. The other big change is the adoption of the Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act. That was adopted in the summer of 2021, and it establishes a process that basically requires that the government of the day set interim targets on the way to net zero in 2050, put forward plans to meet those targets and defend those plans and track their progress and be accountable for their progress that's something we've never seen before this time there is accountability built in but that accountability is the federal government's accountability to the federal parliament they can choose to work through provinces and get agreement with provinces in the absence of that agreement it will be up to the federal cabinet to make that happen. And so that is a more, a potentially at least more top-down approach than we've ever seen.
0: And do you think that's going to be a more successful approach than what's happened previously?
1: Well, we, we can't really do worse. Okay. <laughs> the, yeah. Canada had a track record for 25 years of announcing bold targets. The first one was the Mulroney government's commitment to return emissions to 1990 levels by 2000. And then the Khrushchev government said that they would reduce emissions 25% below 1990 levels by 2005. Then we had the Kyoto commitment, which was weaker, moved the goalposts 6% below by 2010. Like we we just keep moving the goalposts back. Governments have announced plans, but plans are not self-implementing. Targets don't implement themselves, plans don't implement themselves, governments need to adopt the regulations, price carbon, spend money on appropriate infrastructure. And that follow through has never happened before. There's no guarantee that the Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act will ensure that will happen. But I think it increases accountability for failure. It reduces the likelihood that governments can put forward a plan that's just pretending. And we've had a lot of pretend plans that exaggerate how effective different measures will be. And it requires that governments be accountable for meeting targets. So that means voters who really do care about climate change will have mechanisms to hold governments to account that they haven't had previously.
0: Okay. You once compared addressing the climate crisis to Medicare. Can you tell me more about that?
1: You know, I think the Medicare comparison actually came from the liberals in advance of the 2015 election. And at that that point, they were proposing stronger action on climate change. But they used this analogy to Medicare, which was politically brilliant in in two respects. Um, The first is Canadians love Medicare. So it's like, oh, we'll fix climate and it'll be like Medicare. It also, I think it, it got people thinking about one aspect of Medicare and that's that it's a big spending program. The federal government has gotten over time provincial governments to buy into publicly funded, equal access, transportable health insurance by via conditional grants. They offered money to provinces, but there were strings attached to that. And I think that made a lot of people think we're going to fix climate change by the federal government spending a lot of money. I think the more important analogy there was the conditions that are attached. Medicare is a program where the federal government set conditions that provincial governments have had to meet in order to get that money. To the extent the Medicare analogy has worked since 2016, it has not been so much the federal government throwing money around, but the federal government establishing carbon pricing and regulatory expectations, and then saying to provincial governments, you can implement this instead of us, but you're going to have to meet federal criteria, as is the case with Medicare. So I think the Medicare analogy is useful, but it's it's not the part of Medicare that most people think of, which is the federal government opening the purse strings. It's more on the regulatory side. So governments can accomplish their goals by spending money, inducing Individuals or firms to change their behavior with the promise of money, or they can regulate. They can say, here's the rules, you have to meet them, or there will be consequences. In the case of climate change, for a long time, governments promised money and people respond to money. But the scale of challenge that we face to completely transform our economy is not going to be accomplished by public spending. You know, there'll be important public spending around the edges. It's going to take carbon pricing and regulation, and it's the conditions there, conditions that provincial governments have to make if they want to adopt their own regulations rather than the federal government stepping in and doing it themselves. That's the, that's the analogy to Medicare.
0: Okay. So to me, it sounds like it's, it's less about the province and the federal government getting along and agreeing. It's more about this is what's going to happen and this is how we're going to do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, they consult for sure, and there's requirements to consult in the Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act. But I think one of the things that the Supreme Court decision made clear is there is a legitimate federal government role here. And the federal government since 2015 has been increasingly willing to assume that responsibility. They don't have to act through the provinces. They don't have to wait for provincial governments to agree. And in fact, many of the failures, not all, but many of the failures in Canadian climate policy before 2015, 2016 has been because provinces could say no. And that blocked actions nationwide.
0: Yeah, and actually, I mentioned to you previously that I was reading Seth Klein's book, A Good War*. And I really like his analogy of where he compared World War II and how many resources we put into that, and how quickly we responded. And not that everyone was always on board all the time, but how we all came together to accomplish great things. And he compares that to the climate crisis now. Yeah, I don't know if you can speak to that at all, but
1: I, I really like the book. I, you know, a good war is the name of Seth Clyde's book. There's things I agree with and things I'm not quite as optimistic about as Klein is. I think the analogy between that coming together and fight this existential crisis is a really important one. We've done it before. There's similar things at stake here, if anything, greater things at stake. Let's get on with it. Let's, you know, have that more effort. Where I disagree is I think that one of the things Klein points out is just the scale of government operations during the war, that governments nationalized whole industries and took over the means of production. I don't see that happening in the 2020s. I don't think there is political support for that scale. And I think in terms of the the sort of caring economy that he also talks about, one of the challenges will be the source of the revenues to pay for (laughs) those public services. So I think we can't ignore the private sector wealth generation from the private sector where taxes will come to pay for things. So I, I think they're, they're not small quibbles, but with the big picture analogy he draws, I'm totally on board. It's a crisis. Let's treat it as one.
0: Yeah, I thought, I thought the analogy just in general was, was very, very good. And so do you feel like that we are doing enough to address the climate crisis or, or what more can we be doing?
1: There has been a disconnect between Canada's international goals and our national actions. And that still remains, even though we're doing a lot more. So internationally, we embrace the global goal of limiting warming to 1.5C. That would require more than a 45% reduction globally below 2005 levels by 2030. A few years ago, it would have been done at 45%, but in the meantime, emissions kept going up rather than down, so we've gotten further in the hole. Canada, one of the wealthiest and most carbon-intensive economies in the world, has committed to a 40 to 45% cut by 2030, so our own international obligation is less than what's needed to meet 1.5C, but I do think the government of Canada is doing a whole lot more And this spring is going to be a really critical moment to see what's coming. The Net Zero Accountability Act requires that the federal environment and climate change minister produce a plan to meet the 2030 target, to say how we're going to get there. What will follow from that is development of a whole series of regulations of electricity, oil and gas, motor vehicle emissions. And that needs to be done really fast. We have never developed regulations quickly in this country. So I think they're going in the right direction. They're proposing to do the right kinds of things, but they need to actually do them and they need to do them really fast.
0: So this show is all about empowering citizens to take action on climate change. What can individual citizens do today to make sure that these changes are made?
1: I think the most important thing is these governments. Are elected by us and they are accountable to us. They have to get reelected by us in four or five years. So I think there tends to be too much emphasis on individuals' action as consumers, buying different cars and weather stripping our doors and changing our diet. and And I applaud when people do all of those things. I think they are important, but individual action isn't gonna get the job done. We need public policies to do that. And there, I think what citizens need to do is be willing to support the kinds of policies that are gonna be effective at ensuring that transition. I think to date, there has been a tendency for most people to say, this must be the result of big polluters. Somebody else should fix this problem. And big polluters account for a little under half of Canada's emissions and they have been problematic and they do need to clean up, but everything's gonna need to change. How we move around, how we heat our homes, what the prices of carbon intensive and less carbon intensive goods are. And I think we need to be willing to accept and support the policies that are gonna deliver that transition. And not to fall prey to populist appeals that pretend that we don't have to do anything. It's all about someone else, because it's not. And those appeals, the populist appeals, and and those haven't been limited to one party, have, I think, been very effective in the past and have really undermined our progress as a country.
0: And so it's, it's more about voting and voting in the right change and accepting those policies, I guess?
1: Yeah. I think um Canadians have misunderstood carbon pricing. Understandably, this is a very different policy that you know, carbon taxes are not like traditional taxes that exist to make money. They are a regulatory tool. And I think opportunistic politicians have played on that misunderstanding. They've said, you know, this is unfair to you and punitive because somebody else caused this problem. And they've emphasized the cost, they've ignored The benefits in terms of emissions reduction but also the benefits in terms of rebates in many provinces and those appeals have been very effective but they have undermined support for a very effective climate policy and also have resulted in many people opposing a
0: policy that's putting money in their own pockets. Do you have an example of one of those?
1: Well, um, the the federal carbon tax and dividend, which was implemented in five provinces, it's now four, Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Alberta, 80 to 90% of households get more money back in rebates than they pay. But when my colleagues and I did a survey and asked people living in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario, we didn't have Manitoba included, if they were paying more than they were getting back, almost everyone thought they were paying more. They didn't believe the money that they were getting back and Conservatives underestimated their rebates by more than Liberals and New Democrats because they've been told not to trust it, that it's not real, focus on the costs. And so that's an example where there is still quite strong opposition to a policy that is actually putting money in people's
0: pockets. Okay. And so if people have those doubts and they're unsure, if maybe one politician says one thing, another politician says another thing, is there a source they can go to to find a more objective explanation of some of these these things that are being implemented?
1: There has been on carbon pricing. The Parliamentary Budget Office has done reports that are independent. It's a nonpartisan agency. Honestly, media reports were quite accurate. The mass media coverage was well informed, it's the statements that were made by interest groups and partisans that were misleading. So ask tough questions, ask, show me the numbers on all sides. And I think people should be a little more willing to ask tough questions and draw their own conclusions, because in many cases, we're being misled.
0: Great. All right. Well, I think we will end it there. Thanks so much for your time, Catherine. You're welcome. Well, that was my talk with Professor Harrison. Going in, I thought, provinces and the federal government, you know, they have to get along in order for us to make progress, but it it seems like that's not the case, because they probably won't ever see eye to eye 100%, but we can still make progress regardless. And I love the phrase she used, show me the numbers. Regardless of what political side you stand on, let's look at the numbers, let's look at the data, and let's be rational, and in that way, we're going to make progress. Well, that's all for me. I'm Michael Barnes. Here's to feeling a little less in over our head when it comes to saving the planet. We'll see you again soon. In Over My Head was produced and hosted by Michael Bartz. Original theme song by Gabriel Thane. If you would like to get in touch with us, please email info at inovermyheadpodcast.com. Special thanks to Tell a Story Hive for making this show possible. I'm trying to save the planet, oh will someone please save me?